0: Okay, we're running out of time here this morning. Yep. If you haven't turned to Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to give you uh, a little, uh, at the end, kind of an overview on the outline sheet at the bottom. If for some reason you're not going to be a part of our group next week, there's the rest of the outline of the Olivet Discourse. But we will get into the text where we left off last time. And I've been giving you for several weeks. No, I mean not next week. Next year. Next next year. That's right. Next term. Yeah, I'd really get in trouble for that one. We've been looking at the setting of the Olivet Discourse, and we've gone all the way to chapter twenty-one because I think that sets the setting for what we have here. So we spent a lot of time. Introducing this, in fact, almost the whole semester. And where it takes place is the Mount of Olives. There's a photograph of the Kidron Valley there. And it's kind of like an arroyo. It only runs when it rains, as you can see the people down on the bottom there. But that's the Mount of Olives. It would have looked the same, except for probably the structures would have looked the same in the time of Christ. So if you can imagine the disciples... And they're looking, overlooking Temple Mount, another view of the same area, closer up. And they're looking across, and they're probably seeing the East Gate, It's probably the most prominent site that they see, observing the structures there, and Jesus shocks them. He says in verse 2 that not one stone is going to be left standing, and this basically confirms what he's already announced to them, that the temple is going to be destroyed. And as a result of that, they have questions in their minds, and the main question, when? Now, Jesus doesn't answer that directly and clearly. He says there's going to be a destruction, but he doesn't answer that. Instead, he gives them his exposition on the whole area of Bible prophecy. And it's a summary of Bible prophecy. Now, I emphasize several times that when we speak of what is called eschatology, that's Bible prophecy, eschatology is Jewish. Don't forget that. When you study eschatology, eschatology is Jewish. It's tied to covenants. It's tied to Old Testament prophecy. It's tied to Jewish expectations. It's tied to everything that God has said concerning the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel still has a history. That's why we looked at the book of Daniel, because Daniel gives us the rest, from Daniel's time frame, Daniel gives us the rest of Jewish history. And from that, and also putting together the New Testament, we realize that there's still one week left of Jewish history, before the consummation of the age. And it's called Daniel's 70th week. And I made a big point last week that this is a very important time frame. And what we have in the Olivet Discourse is an exposition of that time frame. So there's some preceding events. Now, even in Daniel's passage, there's somewhat explicit with the first word in verse 27, after. After the cutting off of Messiah, there's a gap. Nobody knows the time frame of that gap. In fact, uh, we don't even know. In fact, Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse says he did not know in his humanity. No one knows. Not even the Son is what he says. Verse, what is it, 34 or so? Well, there's preceding events. He's already announced that he will die. Daniel calls that Messiah being cut off. Daniel 9.26. We won't look it up. We've read that. Secondly, he's also talked in Matthew 20, not too many days before, and he has announced it several times that he will be crucified. He will die, but he will rise from the dead. The last announcement, chapter 20, verse 19. So that is something that must take place. There must be a church age. Jesus also, in Matthew's account, very briefly, the disciples have no concept what, what it is, but he says he will build his church upon what Peter says in Matthew sixteen eighteen, based on Peter's confession. That's the foundation of the church, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He recognized that. So there's a whole church age. Now, even if the disciples understood and had a concept of the church, like Paul in the first century still anticipated that this would be a short period of time and the Messiah would return. But the church age must come. We've been waiting 2,000 years. So church age. Who would be preceding that, obviously, a 70 AD judgment. In the minds of the disciples, all of this would take place within a relatively short period of time, perhaps even before 70 AD. They might even thought that what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse, and he is, to some extent, not recorded in Matthew, but recorded in Luke's account. We'll look at that passage later on in Matthew 24 two seventy 70 AD is, I think, very clearly predicted, not the date, but the destruction of the temple, the city, and the entire nation. So that precedes what Jesus is teaching. And because there's a church age, the New Testament tells us, what would you say in terms of prophecy kind of associated with Jewish eschatology? If there's a church, the church is removed. So eschatology does not deal with, in major ways, the church. So it's almost a completion of this period of time called the mystery. A mystery. So there must be a rapture. And the central passage, I should have put it down, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And we also know from Daniel, there must be a covenant that is signed. Jesus doesn't talk about that. But there must be a covenant signed according to Daniel 9.27. These are all preceding events before what Jesus starts off with in, in Matthew 24, verse 4. And that's where we'll pick up. So all these events must precede what Jesus gives. And what Jesus is doing is looking way down the road. And there's lots of details. We'll, I'll bring some of those details out as we get into the biblical text. In fact, starting with uh, even verse 4. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Yes, yes. This is what you need to do to put yourself into the disciples' thinking. All of this was fuzzy in their thinking. We can look back as Monday morning quarterbacks and see clearly that all these things must take place. In the minds of the disciples, it's not real clear. They almost thought that it would all happen very briefly, very shortly. In fact, they, even the death and resurrection was very fuzzy in their minds. Church, even in the book of Acts, after the Pentecost, is still fuzzy. And there's evidence I can show you from it. So, keep those things in mind. If you want to plot all of that, on a Wednesday, before the crucifixion, on Friday, Jesus is giving them the Olivet Discourse. This is the final week. Kicks off the week on Sunday with the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And historically, the 69 weeks of Israel's history, 69 of them, end on that very day. That's been calculated out. The end of the 69 weeks. The Olivet Discourse on Wednesday and deals with these future periods of time, particularly the seven years but also deals with the kingdom age, which is a thousand years. That's Daniel's 70th week. So Israel still has a future. That's why they're in the land today. And then there's the URD. Remember that one?
1: The unresolved discourse.
0: The unresolved discourse, yeah. <laughs> now, the upper room discourse, where Jesus makes a little bit clearer principles of the church age. He talks about things relating to the New Covenant, He speaks of Pentecost, which would be the birthday of the church. So he's giving him a little bit more detail. He even gives the first announcement of the rapture in the upper room discourse. So they don't have any of that yet. And the rapture is a mystery. Paul calls that a mystery. So that's the upper room discourse. And then we have Messiah cut off as Daniel predicts. In other words, the death of Messiah, crucifixion. We have resurrection. Three days later, biblical chronology there, Messiah cut off, 33 AD, and then on Sunday, the resurrection. And what uh, Paul describes as a mystery, it's not revealed anywhere in the Old Testament, that's what a mystery in scripture is, is this whole church age. Beginning with the day of Pentecost, that Jesus introduces in the upper room discourse, And so far it's been 2,000 years. In the mind of the disciples, it's not clear. All of this is fuzzy. Big question mark. It's clear to us because we have the New Testament and we have history to look back upon and how God worked, particularly during the church age. So we have Pentecost, that's the beginning of the church. The end of the church age is the rapture. And then we go back to Jewish chronology and Israel as the center. True believers are taken out. Church age is like a parenthesis in world history. A mystery, according to the Bible. Make sense? And then we have the beginning of a seven-year period. That's the beginning of Daniel's 70th week that begins with this covenant that Daniel announces that's signed by this prince. This prince, we'll find out, is Antichrist. And that brings us to, well, the rest of it here. We're going to look at the middle of uh, the seven-year period, which Daniel talks about, and Jesus alludes back to Daniel. And then we're going to have the return of Christ. This is in the Olivet Discourse. This is Jewish eschatology. And then when Jesus arrives, he establishes the kingdom.
1: Okay? Got it? All,
0: all the Jews who believe are going to go up with the rapture too. All Jews that are part of the church age that have trusted in Jesus Christ before the rapture will go up as well.
1: No Jewish
0: believers left. There's no believers left on the face of the earth. Now there's going to be saints during the tribulation. Book of Revelation makes clear. Bible prophecy in the Old Testament makes clear. The Olivet Discourse speaks of believers in that seven year period. I'll lay all that out as we get to the appropriate passages. Where do they come from? We'll mention that. Not today, but we'll talk about it. So your position is that we will occur before seven weeks of Seven years? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's not my position. It's the biblical position. <laughs> so, so
1: there won't be any joy, do Or anything.
0: Very... There won't be any believers. That this is a horrendous period of time. I hope you get that from the Olivet discourse. Nobody to
1: keep homeless people
0: over. Right. Nobody
1: to. Nobody has the uh, heart to do anything.
0: Uh, it's going to be a terrible period of time. All do-gooders will be gone. Yep. <laughs> the Bible calls that tribulation, a period of tribulation. Very specific in the Old Testament, very particular. Now, it's not clear in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus just lays it out for the disciples. Kind of challenges them to review their eschatology, their Jewish eschatology. But he's laying out a very specific period of time, beginning in verse 4. Now, I'm taking pains to kind of distinguish this. Because a lot of people that deal with Bible prophecy today, and I'll get to this on another slide, sensationalize. And I'm trying to avoid that. So, tribulation. And on this slide, I'm going to give you the two kind of prevailing views within our camp. And probably within this church, even. We're always the minority. We're all, we're the rebels, right? Oh, okay. Is there a name? Like, are we fundies? Yeah, we're fundies. <laughs> Just so you know who you are, we are premillennial. We believe that Christ comes before the millennium.
1: Premi.
0: We're premi. <laughs> premillennial. There's there's two other views. There's amillennial. It basically says the church is everything, and there's no future for Israel, etc. There's no literal millennial kingdom. That's amillennialism. There's postmillennialism. The church does so good. That we establish the kingdom, and Jesus just comes back to pat us on the back. That's post-millennialism. Would that be communism, too? Uh, pro- no, I don't think so. Well, they thought they'd
1: bring it in by social media or
0: And it is based on the millennialism, yeah. Yeah, it's a millennialism. Right, exactly. We are pre-millennial, okay? We are pre-tribulational. That means the church is taken out before the tribulation. And there's at least four different views on it. There's a mid-trib, there's a post-trib, there's a multi-trib, there's a pre-wrath trib, there's all these other views. So
1: they could <coughs> go to the Bible just as easily. No, <clears throat>
0: not so as easily. Okay. So I'm kind of very simply laying out within pre-millennial, pre-tribulation people, very conservative, believe the Bible just like you and I, The signs of Matthew 24 start before the tribulation. But what it's doing is it's mixing another approach to Bible prophecy called historicism. And I gave you a little background on that in our second session, I think. We also believe that some of them see a rapture in the Olivet Discourse. And there does seem to be something that appears to be like a rapture later on. can't remember what verse that is, like verse 13, somewhere in there. Thirteen? Are you talking about? You're talking about the um, one taken and one well, left. That's, yeah, that,
1: that's Yeah, that's yeah, that's going to be closer down to verse forty.
0: 40, 40, 40 okay. 40, 40, 40, 40. Yeah. Okay. Because that's because yeah, that's later. Because the second
1: coming is 29th twenty nine thirty one, and then it
0: begins the rapture, and now and then the right the day will be like this. Yeah, exactly. I forgot the chronology here. So, so some see the rapture in theology discourse, but. It's not revealed until the URD. The uh unresolved what was it again? <laughs> <laughs> the upper room discourse. So the disciples don't even are not even thinking of rapture. So this is not a concept they would understand. And that's a basic principle of interpretation. What would the original audience have understood? Yeah, you're saying uh verse four in all this trip, right? to at least verse 8. And some of them take it to verse 14. So, from verse...
1: Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay,
0: You're saying, um, I forget who
1: it was, one of the guys, I think it was Schaefer, says... Walbert? And, well, no, not Walbert. Walbert does some other wacky stuff. <clears throat> does, he do, does he do that too? Yeah. I know in Pentecost's book, he lists four different ways that people look at verses 4 through 31. And one of them actually says... That 4 through 14 has a
0: dual interpretation. Yeah, there's, there's, like I said, when it comes to Bible prophecy, there's all kinds of use. So you have to be very precise, very careful in your interpretation, very consistent, if you will, particularly in your hermeneutics. Alright? So, when we get to that passage, I'll explain to you why that's not the rapture, it's something else going on there. We'll talk about that. The position I'm taking, and and by the way, you know, study for yourself. Don't believe me. Study the Word. Study for yourself. Be convinced in your own mind. Uh, We still might differ, like Jeff and I, on some of the little details. But I believe that Matthew 20, what Jesus is laying out is Jewish eschatology. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. The disciples had no concept of the church. They were not thinking about church things, so they should be thinking about Daniel particularly. Therefore, Matthew 24 is mostly future after the church age, and I should say the Olivet Discourse. The exception is 70 A.D., which Luke deals with, Matthew does not, other than verse 2 where he announces it, but in terms of the prophetic part, it doesn't deal with 70 A.D., So it's mainly future and way in the future. Way in the future. It's even future from our day. Make sense? And I'm saying verse 4 is in that future time frame. Luke 21 answers the question on 70 AD. And we'll look at that passage. Matthew 24 is fulfilled in the tribulation, at least to verse 28. And then after that, we have the second coming. Does that make sense? See where I'm coming from? So everything that we're going to look at, you can't tie it to what's going on today. Last time I reviewed this specific period of time. It's Daniel's 70th week, beginning in verse 4, all the way to 28. Daniel's 70th week. That last week of Jewish history before the kingdom, before the second coming. It's unprecedented. Remember, we looked up these verses. We won't look them up again, but it's like no other time in world history. And if you want a quick look, look at verse 21 and chapter 24. We read that one. It's also great. It's described as great, even in that verse. Verse twenty-four twenty-one, and book of Revelation, chapter seven fourteen. We looked at that one last time. It's worldwide. There's never been such a persecution worldwide. <laughs> Luke 21.35, Revelation 3.10, and there's other passages as well that talk about worldwide tribulation. So it's unique. And it's horrible. It's the like Matthew 24.21, it's like no time that has ever occurred in world history ever. So terrible. If you read the book of Revelation, you see how terrible it is. That's why it's a good thing that the church is removed. We will not see that. And it has some purposes. We'll talk about the purpose of this time in another talk. It's so bad that people would prefer to die and cannot even kill themselves. Look at Revelation 9.6. We <clears throat> that last time. Why am I making such a big deal? Well, I just mentioned to avoid sensationalism, to avoid tying things that we can see around us and say that these are happening today. Now, things may lead up to what we have in 24-4, but I would encourage you not to look at things today and call them fulfillments of Matthew 24. Don't call them fulfillments. These will be fulfilled in that 70th week. See the distinctions I'm making? Now, we may see wars and rumors of wars. We may see earthquakes. We may see false messiahs. We may see some of the things that Matthew 24 describes, but they, if anything, they may be just things leading up to the actual fulfillments of Matthew 24. Does that make sense? See what I'm doing here? Can you say with the increase of the
1: intensity of of storms and earthquakes, things of that nature, that this could
0: be uh, the expression of the birth pains? That no, I don't think the birth pains begin until the 70th week. Yeah. Another reason, the second reason, is we want to be precise, because there's so many issues in Bible prophecy, you want to try to remain as precise and consistent as you can, and the best that I understand, and I teach a course on eschatology, so I've thought through these things. In fact, I've taught it for several years, and... If you maintain precision, things, I think, do fit into a good sequence and fit together very, very well in terms of understanding. But you have to start with some of the fundamentals. You have to start with a grammatical, historical, contextual approach to interpreting Scripture. In other words, that's the basic approach that is accepted amongst all evangelicals. But those that departed Bible prophecy depart from that. Okay? I think you also have to put as a fundamental, Israel is prominent. In other words, and if you approach Scripture grammatically, historically, contextually, you'll end up with the conclusion that Israel still has a future. So I look at eschatology as Jewish. So if you start with that, And taking passages literally and lining them up, you end up with what I think I'm presenting to you. Make sense? So we want interpretive precision. That's what we're looking for. We've looked at the setting. We're going to look at the tribulation here. And this little portion I've titled, from verse 8, the beginning of birth pangs. That's what Jesus says in verse 8. If you skip down there, we'll get there. Verses 4 through 14, the beginning of birth pangs. That's not all of Daniel's 70th week, it's just the beginning of it. And a lot of you have had babies, not very many of you men that I know of. You that have had babies, you probably reflect that's probably the most painful period of time you've ever experienced, right? And what led up to the birth? Birth pangs, and what's characteristic of that? I have no idea what it would be. Increase in frequency and intensity. Am I a good medical doctor so far? All right. Okay. This is an image. In fact, it's a prophetic image. It's an image that you can find in the Old Testament, and you also can find it in First Thessalonians 5, verse 3, where Paul uses the same image. The idea that this period of time is a period of severe pain on the world, worldwide, men will experience birth pangs as well, and you women are saying, yay, finally, and the image is that things will continue to deteriorate, there'll be an increase in difficulty through this period of time, it gets more difficult as time goes on, through the seven years, And it totally just almost collapses at the end, and the intensity is raised continually throughout the seven years. In fact, it begins somewhat peaceful. I'll kind of show you that in a moment. It's the beginning of birth pangs. We don't have anything now. No, right now we're not even pregnant yet. (laughs) Birth pangs start after the rupture, Right. So this is an analogy that is used by Jesus, and Paul picks up on it in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. An analogy of what it's going to be like before the second coming, the end times before the second coming. The end of the age that the disciples ask. And they're totally aware of a church age, so this is at the end of a Jewish age that has a church as a parenthesis, and then there's a short period of time of seven years at the end of that age. Then there's a birth, if you will, or there's the joy, and the, which is the the analogy is the second coming. Wow. You want to plot this: the beginning of birth pangs, verses four to fourteen, is the first three and a half years. Verses four and five is the first birth <laughs> pang. Now it comes mildly, you might say, its deception is un- unnoticed even. In fact, uh, people are deceived by false Christs, verse 4 and 5, so we need to look at those two verses. And verse 4 is a warning not to be misled. Now, I'm not going to focus on it today, but later on I'm going to focus on the purposes of eschatology. Why does God give us the future? There are several of them. One of them right off the bat. Bible prophecy warns us to be prepared for what God has. So, that's probably the major application we can draw, is we need to do everything to prepare for whatever God has. Not just for eschatology, but that's one of the purposes of Bible prophecy, is to prepare believers to face adversity. And all of us will face adversity. And all of us probably in this country are going to face adversity in the near future. We're seeing the beginnings of that already. So, it's a warning not to be misled. Because in the midst of turmoil, it's easy to be scammed, if you will. It's easy to be deceived. It's easy to fall into traps. And the guard against that is understanding what the Bible teaches. So you need to be in the Word. You need to understand Bible principles. How to deal with adversity. How to deal with situations. And what God is doing in the world is helpful. And that's why he gives us. Bible prophecy. So, since we are to view this as, as being
1: Jewish,
0: yes, Jewish. and future. Jewish, Jewish and future. Or in verse nine, so on. Yes. 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 Definitely. Yeah. But, because it's scripture and we're reading somebody else's mail, if you will, when you read First Corinthians, you're reading somebody else's mail. So letter. Letter. You're reading a letter that was written to the Corinthians. But because it's inspired, it has a broader audience, and we can draw application from it. But it's always secondary to the original audience. Does that make sense? Yeah, because all Scripture is God breathes. So you would say that it it applies, but we are not the fulfillment. Or there's application to experience, but we are not the fulfillment. Exactly. that. That tribulation age, the period that live in that age, they are being warned, but we can apply what they will need to apply to similar situations today. And that's the case with all the Scripture. So verse 4, Jim. Well, uh, this uh, question must be prepared uh, that uh, that preparation has to do with our faith. Yes. It has to do with us learning uh, God's promises trusting Him by experiencing His... his, uh his faithfulness. Right. The promises that He's made. Right. Life, he Applying life. His promises, yes. And when we
1: are able, He'll provide us the way of escape for example. Yes. And so we know that He gives us strength endure your, whatever's coming, but we have to know that.
0: We have to know that, and we have to trust in it. Yeah. If we don't trust in it, then we're going to kind of be a little wobbly and fall into some of the traps.
1: A perspective that's been very helpful to me is the following. If I got a, an email from Jesus today saying, Bill, I'm coming back on Wednesday, would it change anything in do And the answer ought to be no. Ought to be,
0: yeah. The answer ought to be no, that we should live every day as if it were coming tomorrow. Right. And if we
1: knew he were coming tomorrow, it wouldn't
0: change anything in Yeah. And if it is, then probably you're not doing what you should be doing, right, Bill? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what he wants us to do is to continue walking with him, serving him, learning about him, worshiping him, all the things that the Bible encourages. We're not to go off in a cave somewhere, hide and wait till he comes, like some groups have done. Right. So verse 4, And Jesus answered. And this begins the basically the Olivet Discourse, the answer to it. Everything is... Introductory. Jesus answered and said to them, seek to it that no one misleads you. Because in this period of time, deception is going to be at, it's going to be turned up higher than it's ever been before. And because there's no believers, there's not going to be the restraining influence of believers. There's not going to be anyone opposing these people with false ideas. There's not going to be conservatives opposing that that opposes that that is good. Well, I think it's 1 Thessalonians. Paul actually says that God himself. Yes. A, a deceptive didn't. spirit. God participates in the deception
1: of those who refuse the gospel and are left behind. Them.
0: Without involving evil. Yeah, 2 Thessalonians 2. That's We're going to look at that in another context. But God sends a delusion, because because of the purpose that He has for this period of time. We'll get into all of that, Linda. So, if
1: when we're raptured, are we like gone forever, or do we come back on white horses?
0: We have a part. Yeah, we come back.
1: Or do we get to see any of this happening? Possibly, because we're not gone like in heaven type
0: right? Yeah, we're we're with Christ, and we return with Him at His second coming. You're jumping way ahead. You guys always well, I want go to way know ahead. What
1: we're doing up there. So, are we watching?
0: We may. I don't know if we're watching it. Um. We probably may, but we're primarily worshiping. We're going to be so overwhelmed with Christ that uh, we're not going to be able to think of anything else. What? All
1: those who have gone before them know
0: what they're doing every day, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Good comment. See to it. Let's take a look. Let's take a close look at this, because this is very important. This is the beginning of what Jesus is saying. Notice the quote marks. See to it. Let's be careful right at the beginning. First of all, the Greek word there is blepo. Blepo. It is a common word in the New Testament. It occurs 133 times, and about 118 or more even, probably, some of them are not so clear. Just has the idea of seeing something. Seeing or observing. Very basic meaning. And that's the most common usage of the word bleppo. But in some contexts, and you might get the hint, probably this one, it has a, probably more of a forceful idea of not just seeing, not just observing, not just looking at something, But it has the idea of warning, or you might have the the idea of keep your eyes open. In other words, be aware, be alert. And there's several, well, not several in comparison to the 133, but there's a significant number that has the idea where they are warnings in different ways. Sometimes it's even translated, take heed, in some context. This lepel, this word lepel. In some context, beware. So it has the idea of beware, take heed. For example, in Matthew 12, uh, 38, it says, beware of the externalism of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's dangers there. Beware of it. In Acts 13, 40, it says, take heed in relationship to unresponsive to the gospel. Because if you don't respond to the gospel... Your eternity is in jeopardy here. So take heed. In First Corinthians 3.10, it says, Be careful. And in these contexts, that same word is used, blephel. Be careful how you build on your foundation in Christ, because you can go astray. In fact, you can fail to build. So be careful. So it's translated, beware, take heed, be careful. And in other contexts, similarly, Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, because there's dangers out there. There's things that trip you up, the whole spectrum, from little things to big things. It's also used in reference to false teaching. In other words, beware of false teaching. For example, in Mark 4.24, take care what you listen to, and then it goes on, and in the context of false teaching, that's Mark 4.24. Or Colossians 2-8, see to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceivers. Blepo, see to it. See the idea of seeing but being warned concerning false teaching. And in this case, it's philosophy and empty deceivers. It's used in the Olivet discourse in Mark's gospel and obviously right here in Matthew's gospel, but in Mark's gospel, 13.9, be on guard. And it's referred in the context of persecution, because of the dangers of persecution. And then it in Mark 13.23, still the Olivet Discourse, take heed concerning all the signs that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 24. So that's how Jesus begins. In other words, he begins with warning. And that's one of the purposes of the Olivet Discourse, is to prepare all believers to face whatever circumstances they may face, and particularly that 70th week generation, they will especially need to take take warning or be be careful. So that's one of the purposes of the book. And I gave you the passage on the end of the age, in other words, the Olivet Discourse, the Mark 13 passages and this passage here. One thing to note, it's in the second person. And the only reason I'm bringing this up, because there's a lot of interpreters that can In other words, it's spoken to the disciples. They are there. So it makes sense, from the interpretive perspective, that the Olivet Discourse pertains to them. But what Jesus is doing is what's typical of almost every prophet. Every prophet writes, for example, Isaiah, Jeremiah... They write to the people that are living in their time. But a lot of what they are writing, even though it is in the second person, in other words, it is written to that particular audience, what Jeremiah, what Isaiah, what some of the other prophets are talking about, they're talking about things that are thousands of years late, or hundreds of years in some cases, and in some cases thousands of years from our perspective. They're talking about the coming of Messiah, and some of those things don't take place even future from our time. So just because it's in the second person doesn't mean that it pertains to that generation. Now this is where the preterist school of interpretation camps on the second person there, and others as well. And what Jesus is doing is just doing what all of the prophets do. He's giving them a future. Now, it applies to them, because they're going to live before 70 AD, and they need to be warned as well. But ultimately, it refers to a generation in the future, and from our perspective, 2,000 years later at least. So, that's common in prophecy. And see to it that no one misleads you. That's the warning. There's going to be an unbelievable amount of deception. Now we're seeing deception in government today, but that's nothing compared to what you, what people will see during the seventieth week. Even the nation of Israel is going to be deceived. So
1: Ray, can I say one thing about that? Yes. The yeah. Go back so, slide. So it's important to know that hey, we can be misled. And two, how do you keep from doing that? I think it's what Jim talked about. When exactly. Before, is know
0: God's promises. You're in the Word. You have a relationship. Right. And, that type
1: of stuff.
0: and by the way, a lot of people today in the church are misled and are deceived because they're believing doctrines that are not biblical.
1: Right now, it seems that the Bible says if you don't deal with God, the gospel, of the truth, yes. he makes you right then a fool. Like, you become,
0: you become a fool. a something fool.
1: happens to your intellect, so that's sort of scary. That's scary? because Yeah, because
0: then... That's like the passage... Once you're,
1: once you're blinded, you get more blinded. It's
0: hard to... Hard. Linda's talking about there is a principle when God reveals himself, if you respond negatively to his revelation, in other words, his word, you become hardened. You become hardened. And the more that you have revelation, the more hardened you become. Because you're more responsible for the revelation that you have. So it's very important to respond to all revelation positively. And then God not only works within you to open you up and to cleanse you and do all the things that you need and gives you further revelation that adds to that so you grow.
1: A good analogy would be the place of Egypt. As the place of Egypt are going, it's at the beginning it starts with and Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh... And then a little bit later on, right about to the seventh plague, it says, And God hardened his heart. That's right. And God hardened his heart. Yeah.
0: In other words, he solidifies what you have already done, and what you are doing is you are coming under greater condemnation, of ultimately. Okay, let no one miscede me. I'm Dr. Toussaint, in fact, I was able to see him in Dallas. He's a neat, neat saint in his 90s now. He says, the disciples thought that the destruction of Jerusalem with its great temple would usher in the end of the age. This is what I've been telling you. The Lord separates the two ideas and warns the disciples against being deceived by the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. In other words, they're going to see the Jerusalem temple destroyed. They're going to think, oh, okay, Messiah is going to come, and they may fall for these false messiahs. So, he's warned the disciples against being deceived by the destruction of Jerusalem of Jerusalem and other such catastrophes, the raising of the temple and the presence of wars and rumors of wars do not necessarily signify the nearness of the end. In fact, what they suggest that the period is going to be a little bit longer than the disciples anticipated. It's going to be longer. Verse 5, and we'll conclude with this, there's a danger of false Christs. Danger of false Christs. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one mislead you. That's verse 4. For many will come in my name. Many will come in my name. Now we'll have to pick up there next week, or next time, not next week, next year, when we meet. There's going to be many that say, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now, I want to discuss this and explain the difference between what a lot of people are saying today and what have said, have been saying since the first century, and even before the first century. In fact, Josephus talks about many false Christs in the time preceding Jesus. There were false Christs. And we'll conclude with first John two, eighteen. Because what John is talking about here, and remember John writes at the end of the first century, he's talking about something distinct. From what Jesus is talking about. At least I'm making the distinction. Jesus is talking about false Christ way in the future. John is talking about first Christ that existed in his day. And there have been false Christ ever since. And I'll give you some other info on that. But let's just conclude with this passage and think about that, and the next few weeks we'll come back. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. So the first century believers knew about this personage, who is a false Christ, Antichrist. Even now, this is in the first century, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Many Antichrists. And this is what Jesus predicts in verses 4 and 5. Don't be misled. Now, there's some applications we can draw that I'll also bring out later, but let's stop at this point and just be warned. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. And there are false messiahs today out there. They're not the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24, but we have to deal with a similar situation and we need to be warned. And as it's already been brought out, in conclusion, we need to get into the Word And apply it and walk according to what God has revealed. Closing thought. We need to constantly evaluate everything in the media or even within the church. Evaluate everything, all things by scripture to avoid deception. Merry Christmas. Somebody close this in prayer. Mary. Father, I thank
1: you. That you that you hold all things, that everything that we see going on around us is under the power of your orchestration and your planning. So I pray, Father, for us in the class, that we will indeed deeply focused on you, that we will be hiding your word in our hearts so that it will be a warning when we encounter false teachings of uh, things designed to mislead us, Father, I pray that you will use it so in our lives, so that we can live before you and before an unbelieving world to be a light of Jesus Christ as long as you allow us. Commit this class to you, and I commit this time as we celebrate your son and his arrival here, Father, work through us to that we might have a
0: part of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.